With all eyes closely watching the developing hybrid war between Russia and Ukraine, it's worth looking at the recent history that brought us to this place and how it informs current activity in the region. My guest today has done just that. Kenneth Gears is ambassador for the NATO Cooperative Cyber Center of Excellence and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's editor of the book Cyber War in Perspective, Russian Aggression Against Ukraine, published in 2015. So I moved to Estonia in the spring of 2007 during that nation's uh, crisis with Russia over a Soviet statue that Estonia wanted to move. Moscow decided to use it for a propaganda war. Uh, and there wound up being, after the political fight, a weeks-long distributed denial-of-service attack against banks in Estonia, the media, government. And so while it wasn't a national security crisis, it was a proof of concept or an experiment in that direction. And so many people wanted to know whether, you know, for a country like Estonia that that invests in, you know, in, in electronic government and digital society, what would happen if you shut that down? So the center is not operational in the military sense. It's more like a think tank, but it does research on uh, computer security topics as they relate to national security. Uh, and now even countries outside of NATO, including Finland and Sweden and Japan and New Zealand and Switzerland have taken part uh, in exercises, and, and some of them are not full members, but they participate on a daily basis uh, in the center's activities. So in 2015, uh, the organization published a report titled Cyber War in Perspective, Russian Aggression Against Ukraine. And certainly, um, I think uh, that report is drawing new attention given the situation between Russia and Ukraine today. What were the takeaways when you initially published that report back in 2015? So we published the report about a month before the Christmas attacks uh, that turned out uh, the, the lights targeted the electrical grid in western Ukraine. Even so, I think uh, in the introduction I wrote, based on the work of about 20 authors and 18 chapters, that there was no decisive cyber attack uh, during the 2014 war between Russia and Ukraine in what's known as the Donbass, eastern Ukraine, and the takeover of Crimea. However, wherever one looked, there were examples to analyze of computer network operations of a, a novel variety, really. So in the diplomatic space, uh, U.S. diplomats had their telephone communications captured via traditional signals intelligence, uploaded to YouTube, and announced on Twitter. One of the authors we had for the book was the chief of the Ukraine CERT, the computer emergency response team. And he wrote that the attack on the summer presidential election because in the spring, the, the, the president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, had to flee to Russia after the events in, in Maidan. So the Euromaidan uprising uh, that winter of 2013-14 forced him out. And so they had a, 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 an election in the summer of 2014 to find a new president. 
the head of the Ukraine CERT wrote that it was the most advanced attack that they had ever investigated. And it sort of boiled down to this, the, the website that was meant to to show and to publicize the winner of the election or the, the ongoing tally at the end of the day uh, had been hacked. And rather than display the, the, the actual vote count up to that point, a far-right candidate was announced the winner. Uh, and this was immediately announced on Russian television that evening. Again, mm. suggesting sort of a coordinated operation uh, to embarrass uh, Ukraine and to diminish the legitimacy of the election. So those are a couple of examples. We could talk about some military, some business, uh, even focused on uh, civil society in social media, sort of developing accounts that were had just been created in order to, you know, to insert propaganda into into the space. But basically, in every domain. In the book, we talked about examples of computer network operations, nothing that might be decisive, let's say, in a war. But what it did show was that you're not going to invade a country these days without also using you know, digital tools and tactics uh, and hackers to support your troops and to support your political goals. It just is not going to happen anymore because everywhere we looked, we saw examples of it. One of the chapters in the book that was uh, written by Jason Healy and Michelle Cantos from Columbia University is titled, What's Next for Putin in Ukraine? Cyber Escalation? Uh, again, you know, this was back in, in 2015. How have some of these uh, predictions played out? Well, the NotPetya ransomware attack in Ukraine that emanated, sort of reverberated throughout the world has been called the most costly and damaging uh, cyber attack in history. In fact, there are still legal cases ongoing today after those events. And it's unknown whether the attackers intended to damage multinational corporations in Denmark and Switzerland and elsewhere, but that's in fact what happened. To, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in lost time and, and equipment and forcing the repurchase of, of software and hardware. It's a different era that we're living in when you can damage not only you know, the, the, uh, the bottom line of a country with a ransomware attack, but you can scare off investors uh, and you can frighten you know, partnerships uh, in the business space. And, and that's what many analysts believe. The result of NotPetya, whether it was entirely intended or not, it was an attack that took place in peacetime that was purportedly or um, on the surface, it was criminal in nature, but deeper investigation yields uh, a different conclusion that it was, in fact, a geopolitical attack. And that's where we are in terms of analyzing what cyber war is or might be. There's a large gray area uh, between hacktivism and cybercrime and cyber war, uh, and the lines, if they exist, are, are hard to see. 
You know, as you and I record this, and Russian troops are positioned on the border with Ukraine, and there's a lot of um, worry and speculation as to what's going to happen next. You know, to what degree have these cyber attacks that you and your colleagues have tracked over the past few years? It was this a a demonstration of uh, potential capabilities of of uh, putting it out to the rest of the world that you know these are some of the things we can do and you need to take that into account. I think so. In terms of computer network operations, I think there is still a lot of experimentation uh, going on, both for determining thresholds as well as trying to understand what other people could see what they will countenance as well, because most governments are probably involved to some degree in cyber espionage. And so part of the challenge is that it's kind of hard to know sometimes if a hacker is on your network, are they there to, you know, to read your email or deny you access to your email or change one of your emails, right? There's sort of this spectrum of cyber attacks in which the attacker could get more and more aggressive in behavior. And so there's a lot of experimentation going on, and there's a lot of wanting to know how far you can, can push the envelope, I think. And the 2015 Christmas attack on the electrical grid in Ukraine was duplicated in a year later in Ukraine, right? And so it's almost like the attackers kind of wanted to send a message that we're still here and we still have capabilities uh, that could be brought to bear. They also, they want to know the defender, what is the defender going to do? What can they see? Can they prevent this? But with, I think, an attack like that, the attacker probably knows that they are equally vulnerable to similar attacks. And that may slow down the use of super aggressive computer hacking to support even the invasion of Ukraine. In this case, if Moscow would fear that its own uh, electrical grid or its own, you know, either infrastructure or sensitive documents, you know, that could be stolen and leaked, uh, are are equally vulnerable. They they have to imagine that in this day and age, because there's only one internet and we're all sort of sharing it and it has, you know, international kind of architecture for operating systems and applications and data, you know, most countries are, are vulnerable as well. And so that's one of the reasons we might see a, a um, hesitation uh, before firing certain cyber weapons that, that likely exist. I've also seen some folks uh, speculating that, um, that they would be reticent to tip their hand in terms of their capabilities, that they don't want to reveal you know, the the uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures that they have unless they would absolutely have to. And so if a, a, a kinetic uh, method were able to achieve the same goals, perhaps they would use that first so as to not reveal what their cyber capabilities are. Do you think that's a, a reasonable line of thinking as well? I think so. I think that if if the goal is to occupy, let's say, five more cities in Ukraine, Computer network attacks will be used 
with some discretion and in some proportion to achieve those objectives, but they will probably not not stray or not exceed those parameters. Um, in other words, if if Russia wants to take Kharkiv and Odessa, right, two more cities in Ukraine, they're probably not going to mess with the infrastructure in New York City. That said, if escalation gets out of control, then all bets are off, right? In, in other words, I, I think one of the problems, and this this may be beyond the bounds of, of our current discussion, but in Moscow, I think we're dealing with more of a, of a Putin problem than a Russia problem, right? So the, the leadership legitimacy uh, in Moscow is is driving, I think, events more than the true national security interests of Russia. So if Putin were like a cat, you know, trapped, then might grow unpredictable, right? And in other words, if, if Putin's place uh, as the, the leader of Russia comes into question, then the, the, um, the ladder of escalation may get out of control and a leader may at least think they are forced to, uh, to exceed the parameters of what they, they had intended. Nobody wants that. And, and I think there'll be efforts to contain the, um, the conflict. Uh, I certainly hope so. Uh, and hopefully we don't have a conflict at all. You know, in, in the things that you've seen in the media and elsewhere, when it comes to diplomatic efforts uh, with this particular conflict in, in the cybersecurity realm, um, are you optimistic that uh, that there's good things happening here, that we could see a de-escalation? I hope so. I have been uh, fortunate to work with a few international organizations. I love the work I've done for NATO. I've done also some work for the OSCE or the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And that is is weaker, but it's bigger than NATO. So it encompasses the former Soviet Union. So I've gotten to do some work for them in Russia and Armenia and and elsewhere. Uh, And one of the things that we worked on over the past 10 years are confidence building measures or CBMs for cyberspace. And currently there are 16. Uh, Now, each of them has the word voluntary somewhere in it. But it's really important to think about lessons from arms control or lessons from, let's say, the Chemical Weapons Convention of decades past and how they might help uh, for uh, cyber conflict uh, in the future. And I can boil those 16 down in another way as well and say that communication, transparency, keeping phone numbers up to date, that sort of thing is really critical because if something bad happens, you want to know whom to call. Uh, and that's why, of course, we had the hotline, you know, in in uh, in, in in the Cold War and, and still do. Mm. You know, if something gets out of control, you really want to know who who you can talk to uh, to defuse uh, the crisis. And that, that's really key. And I think with with uh, with cyber conflict or computer network operations at the national level, it's also important because of the the anonymous nature of so many attacks, uh, the ability of nation states to steal each other's malware uh, and repurpose them for a different operation in a different place. It may be hard to do 
attribution in a timely manner. And that's one of the things that's that's tough about, I think, uh, cyber weapons and cyber attacks is that it really does take time to sort of untangle uh, them and to do uh, what's called attribution. And sometimes to do attribution, maybe all the time, you can't just rely on log files or indicators of compromise, but you actually may need to, uh, you know, to, to for a human spy or for a law enforcement officer to engage overseas with not only friendly powers, but with the, uh, you know, the, the suspected culprit to try and figure out, you know, is, uh, is this really you or might it be someone else uh, playing you uh, in cyberspace? It also strikes me that if you look at the example of NotPetya and whether you are on the, the side who uh, believes that perhaps it was something that had unintended consequences or, or whether uh, its consequences were intentional, the ability for it to act so quickly, to spread so quickly, to worm its way around the globe – um, I think is particularly interesting as well to your point of being able to pick up the phone and have humans talk to humans and hopefully cooler heads prevail. When things happen at the speed of cyber, I think that's an important consideration. That's right. I think that that um, the speed with which you know packets can move across the internet, a couple of things, it does belie the the amount of work and time that would go into the operation, you know, before pulling the trigger, you know, that may take months and years. And, and that's one of the ironies and one of the challenges of, of cyber conflict is that if I'm going to want to hack you in a time of conflict, I probably need to do most of the prep work in peacetime, which mm. makes then uh, the, the internet a chaotic place, right, for, for businesses and for peace and stability, right, in, in the good times. Um, and that's a real challenge, I think, that, that world leaders have to grapple with. And, and one of the things that I think about in terms of the EU and NATO, which, which I honestly, me personally, I believe that's the only world's true cyber superpower is the EU and NATO because they, they comprise, you know, roughly 30, however you want to count them, between 20 and 40 affluent democracies that are working together for peace and security uh, and stability within their space. And so it's whether it's law enforcement, intelligence and network security agencies that are working together. If you imagine yourself as, as a bad actor, when the EU and NATO and they do work together closely on cybersecurity, then it really creates a very um, impressive and intimidating uh, group. Uh, last year, I, I was living in Africa, and I just before I moved to South America, I, we went on one final trip to Kruger Park in South Africa, and we followed this lion that was circling a giant group of zebra and um, kudu, and the lion was so intimidated, right? They, there were hundreds of them in a circle, all staring down the lion. And then one of my takeaways from that is that we should make, uh, you know, the Alliance of Democracies look similar to that in cyberspace uh, so that, you know, if, if we're working together proactively and reactively, then the bad actors who don't trust each other will really feel isolated. 
Our thanks to Kenneth Gears for joining us. The book is titled Cyber War in Perspective, Russian Aggression Against Ukraine. 